Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. When I win on November 8th, I am going to bring your jobs back to America. He did win. What's the president doing now to fulfill that jobs promise? So far, immigration and trying to deflect allegations of dealings with Russia have dominated the focus of the White House. Today, where we live, we explore what kinds of jobs can realistically come back to America. Politicians like to talk about bringing manufacturing jobs back. Is that just spin when technology like automation has already changed the workforce environment? Coming up, we'll hear how advances in AI or artificial intelligence may impact the jobs long thought of as safe. As I'm writing, I wondered, will robots one day host daily talk shows? I'm hoping not. And later, we'll go way back to the 19th century to hear how those rebellious Luddites dealt with new technology. And no, we're not promoting that you smash up the newest gadget at work. First, lots of news surrounding big insurers. At one time, there were deals happening to merge Aetna and Humana and Anthem with Cigna. That's not the case now. To help us understand why the deals broke down and how it may impact each one of us here in Connecticut, I'm joined now by Harriet Jones, WNPR's business reporter. Welcome back to the show, Harriet. Good morning, Lucy. So update us first on these proposed mergers between these big insurers. Yes, yeah, so these mergers have been ongoing or talked about or you know being planned for more than a year. Um, the Department of Justice uh, under the Obama administration sued both companies to, to say these mergers are going to be anti-competitive. There were five, there are still five big insurers. They would have been reduced to just three major insurers across the whole nation um, by these mergers. So the DOJ said that's anti-competitive uh, and they, they sued to block these mergers um, on, uh, on antitrust grounds uh, and they won in court. So um, we've been paying attention to it because uh, two of the four um, insurers are based here in Connecticut, Aetna and Cigna. So tell us about Aetna and Humana. So they, they heard from the government this was not going to happen, and so um, that merger uh, deal broke down. Yeah, so January 23rd, um, the, the judge in that case ruled that, yes, they, they could not merge because um, it would affect um, actually the Medicare Advantage market. Those are the plans that seniors can buy into to kind of supplement their Medicare um their Medicare coverage. Uh, uh, both are big players in that market. So the judge said, you know, if you combine, people won't have a big choice of where they can buy the Medicare Advantage plan. So the deal is off. Um, they chose not to appeal. They, uh, so January 23rd was the ruling. April 14th, Valentine's Day, as was noted, ironic, that the two companies said, you know, we're not going to appeal this ruling. We're just going to go ahead with our, you know, plan B strategy. February 14th. And so now um, they're not appealing. Was that a surprise? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I think, you know, taking this forward, it's already been in a very, very expensive process, um, you know, particularly for Aetna, which, you know, by some estimates has spent a billion dollars already on trying to make this merger happen. It now is on the hook for a billion dollar breakup fee. 
that it has to pay to Humana. So this has already been a very expensive adventure for Aetna. So in some, in some senses, you know, backing away from that and saying, okay, let's let's take it take it somewhere else is not that much of a surprise. Why did these big insurers even attempt to try to get this merger through? I mean, because there were questions from the start about the idea of having um, these five turn into big three in yep. anti-competition. Yeah, I mean, for sure it was a risky bet because, you know, health insurance is very heavily regulated and they always knew there was going to be a high regulatory burden. And that's, in some senses, why Aetna owes Humana this big breakup fee because they did have this kind of huge risk that this would not pass the pass the regulatory scrutiny. Um, so, so, yeah, uh, the, the the insurers say, you know, the only way for us to deal with this changing healthcare landscape under the ACA, under Obamacare, is to consolidate, is to get economies of scale. So that they said this would dr- this was the mechanism by which they would get efficiencies and drive down prices. So that was their rationale. On the other side, um, both doctors' advocates and patient advocates said, no, 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 no. Well, the thing that drives down uh, prices for consumers and um, keeps reimbursements for doctors fair is competition. So they, you know, very much the American Medical Association, the Connecticut State Medical Society, both were very much in favor of these mergers not going through. And, for, you know, they were very happy to see the see the judge's ruling. You mentioned um, ACA. So Humana, they announced they're out for 20 years. They did. They did. And I think that's going to be one of the big things to watch coming out of you know this changing landscape is what happens now for the ACA because with the failure of the mergers but also with the change of administration and now the GOP kind of owns Obamacare in some senses and it's going to be interesting to see because you know the, the the Republicans have said repeal and replace you know it's going to be gone on day one we you know from what we hear coming out of Washington they're having a lot of difficulty you know seeing what that replace piece would be putting that together the insurers may pull the plug for them. Humana has already said it's out. Etnos has said by April 1st it's going to make a decision for 2018. Mark Bertolini, Etnos CEO, said to the Wall Street Journal yesterday, Obamacare is in a death spiral, <laughs> his exact a, words. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, you know, the, the prospects for them staying in for 2018 do not seem good. So if the big insurers start to pull out, then, you know, the GOP may actually find this in their lap sooner than they thought. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. WNPR's Harriet Jones is in studio with us. She's our business reporter updating us on the latest with the uh, insurance companies and failed mergers uh, that have uh, the news that has broken the last couple of weeks. We just talked about Aetna and Humana. Update us on Anthem and Cigna. There's a, a, a battle yeah, brewing. A very, very different dynamic. So Aetna and Humana, the two CEOs there, they had what was described as a bromance. And they embraced that term. So they very much, you know, that was very cooperative. Whereas Aetna, uh, Anthem and Cigna, right from almost from the get-go, has been very adversarial. And it started with a disagreement very early on about who would be the CEO of the merged company. And each of the CEOs thought it should be them. Um, so that has always been a very, very contentious deal. And there's some senses in which, you know, Cigna may have on February 8th, when their ruling came down that they could not merge or that they were blocked from merging by the court, um, you know, Cigna may well have been fairly relieved by that because I think they had really soured on the deal and they had already announced that we have this plan B, we have all this cash stockpiled, we're going to go after smaller acquisitions, this is the way that we're going to take our company forward. Mm-hmm. So Anthem is suing Cigna? So Cigna, after the judge's ruling, Cigna, uh, Anthem said it would appeal. Mm-hmm. We're going back to court, we're going to appeal the judges, the, you know, the, the DOJ case. Uh, Cigna then filed in, in the Court of Chancery in Delaware to say, no, we're done. We, we're ending this merger. 
uh, and then Anthem countersued to say, no, 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 you can't, you can't do that. You can't uh, sue to end the merger. So we're gonna get, it's going to be very interesting to see what comes out of that suit and countersuit. So I think it's a big question that we have we wanted you on is to find out how does this impact the consumer, us, mm-hmm. in our health care uh, choices, but also we have you know big insurers that employ thousands of people here in the state. Right. So what does this mean? Yeah. So for, I, I mean, for consumers and for healthcare providers, you know, the, it's generally considered that more competition in the health insurance market is probably going to keep prices down for consumers. So in that case, you know, I think preserving that landscape of five big insurers it, it probably helps to keep prices down. Um, for jobs here in Connecticut, it's you know I think there's a lot of speculation still to go on. So, Cigna um, is based in Bloomfield. The company that would have bought it, Anthem, is based in Indianapolis. So, had that merger gone through, that probably would not have been positive for Connecticut jobs. You could imagine that you know jobs might well have left Cigna's at Bloomfield headquarters. How many jobs? Um, several thousand. I mean, who knows how many yeah. would have gone. They probably, I'm sure they would have kept a base here, but, mm-hmm. you know, probably not that, you know, those kind of headquarters. In Aetna's case, I think, you know, it's still very much up in the air because Aetna, there were rumors that Aetna was going to move its headquarters from Hartford to um, Louisville in Kentucky, which is Humana's base. And they, they'd never confirmed that, but they also never denied it. So, you know, it did seem as if they were kind of shopping around. And since the judge's ruling came down, they are known to have been looking at real estate in Boston, um, not real estate that would contain their entire headquarters staff. So it doesn't look like they're look, moving, looking to move lock, stock, and barrel, but it does look like they're looking for alternatives to Hartford. Meanwhile, uh, Governor Malloy proposed um, recently lowering the insurance tax to save the insurance industry $11 million next year, $22 million in the following year. Could this be seen as a, a way to say, hey, don't give up on Connecticut. Right. So, you know, I mean, you, you saw the flack that uh, Governor Malloy got when GE left. <laughs> How could we forget? <laughs> right. So obviously, you know, uh, he is not looking forward to having another major company, major employer looking elsewhere. You know, that would see, be seen as a major defeat for him. So, yeah, perhaps in some ways he's looking for incentives to have them stay. A major defeat for the state, but also a major hole to be left in Hartford. If Absolutely. Yes. Yep. That's WNPR's business reporter, Harriet Jones, uh, coming up. We thank you for giving us a little bit of that analysis. You're welcome. Uh, coming up, we're going to turn our attention to the one thing politicians love to promise, the return of jobs with advances in technology, specifically automation. What does the future hold for the American workforce? We're going to find out more after the break. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. WNPR's business reporter Harriet Jones is here with me as we shift focus to talking about automation. How will advances in technology impact America's workforce over the next few decades? Now, we know towns and cities across the U.S. that used to be bustling thanks to manufacturing. Could those jobs ever come back? Do you worry that your job will become obsolete? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, joining us today from the studios of Indiana Public Radio is Dr. Michael Hicks. He's the George and Francis Ball Distinguished Professor of Economics, also director of the Center for Business and Economic Research at Ball State University. Uh, Michael, welcome to the show. 
Good to be with you, Lucy. So let's talk about um, automation versus outsourcing. What are the labor trends showing us? As an economist, we hear so often manufacturing jobs have decreased, but production has increased. Can you explain? Well, sure. So manufacturing uh, production, the value of goods and services produced in the United States, actually peaked in 2015. We don't have data for 2016, but there's good evidence that that was also a record year. At the same time, employment peaked back in 1977 um, with about a loss of about 7.2 million manufacturing jobs since then, including well over 15,000 last year. And so w- what this really portends is a growth in the production per worker in, in manufacturing has just been exploding, and uh, which is part of a trend over the past 75 or 100 years. And it, it seems in some ways to have really spiked between, oh, say, early 1990s and the beginning of the Great Recession. Um, and at the same time, uh, the amount of uh, consumption by Americans of manufactured goods as a share of their total income has been shrinking. So today, uh, manufacturing sits at about $2 trillion, or about uh, 11% of the U.S. economy, but only employs about 6% of the workforce. So it's, it's, a, it's a lot different than what many uh, folks my age, I'm a young baby boomer, remembered at manufacturing in the 1970s or early 80s. And what's driving those trends? Can we look at, at automation as um, helping increase that production, but not having companies not having to employ as many people? Right. I mean, I think there's a couple of three things that are playing into this. Uh, one is that manufacturers have just gotten more lean in non-production workers. So, you know, maybe they don't have as many accountants. The uh, typical nurse that was on a factory floor in, say, 1975 is now outsourced to a healthcare provider somewhere in the region. So employees and manufacturing go away that way. The factory floors become more automated in terms of just you know raw machinery to replace the skills of, of muscle and mind. So information technology, uh, CAD designs to replace the reading of blueprints. And then I think also there has been a, a you know dramatic improvement in the overall production process. So where maybe a warehouse, 25 years ago, had a, a large stock of employees who knew where all the parts were, who could replace the bins in a production facility, is now being done by an automated truck. And so that eliminates a lot of workers in that portion of the economy. And then, uh, of course, of the you know roughly 7.2 million jobs lost to in manufacturing since the late 1970s, the consensus is somewhere between three quarters of a million and one and a quarter million are due to trade imbalance, that, that some American jobs have been lost. But that still leaves something like 80 to 90 percent of lost manufacturing jobs due to productivity growth over the past uh, 40 or so years. Now, when we talk about automation, you know, how has um, the technology changed where you saw like the, what we thought of as a traditional machine that may be helping um, do work and put together cars in Detroit? But when we look at automation and technology, you know, what, are, what is being uh, put out there now that's changing the workforce environment? Well, I like to think of three things. Uh, one is just the machinery that can actually replace the skills of workers um, it, or skill uh, um, types of tasks like, uh, you know, actually reading a blueprint, those sorts of things are, are much more common now. And I think those are the types of jobs that we worry about with artificial intelligence taking over because those are machines that can learn uh, tasks, complex tasks that we for a long time thought could only be done by people. The second one is the overall production process. So in the 
the production process again by having um, the shop floor organized differently, by having spare parts inventory lower, by having uh, those sorts of things have, have cut back on the parts of the production staff that maybe were less productive and less important to the actual human task of assembling or cutting or molding a piece of manufactured items. And then the third thing, and I think this is equally important, are tasks that make people better. Things like statistical process control, which many of your listeners will have heard as Lean Six Sigma, would allow a manufacturing firm to, to train a worker to read a computer interface that could detect product anomalies or quality defects early before they ended up in the finished product. So it really saved disassembling equipment or reworking items. And so some of these are labor-replacing, or some of them are workforce enabling, you know, the, this this entire factory floor. And then some of them are skill complementing. So they, they really boost the opportunities for, for higher wage workers. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about automation, how it's changing, uh, what our American workforce will look like in the next few decades. Uh, joining us from the studios of Indiana Public Radio, Dr. Michael Hicks. He's the director of the Center for Business and Economic Research at Ball State University, also a distinguished professor of economics. Uh, I wanted to ask you a little further about um, the sectors that have been most affected by automation. Um, can you tell us, walk us through the traditional um, sectors and then how it's creeping in um, because of AI, artificial intelligence. Right. So the, the, over the past 40 years, and then this is a trend that really dates uh, very far back in the history of manufacturing. Um, you're in Connecticut. Connecticut was at once a breathtakingly large manufacturing state. Now it's far more populated by, as the last segment illustrated, uh, uh, insurers and that sort of thing. Um, the the uh, If you think about manufacturing as really sort of uh, let's say, very high-tech. So the production of durable goods in uh, machinery, fabricated metal, computer electronics, aviation, avionics, those sorts of things, those have those types of jobs have done fairly well. So if you look at um, the loss of jobs uh, and you look at categories, categorize workers by three types, low-skilled, medium, high-skilled, the low-skilled workers since 2000, about 40% of them have lost, uh, have seen job disappear. It's about 15% for middle-skilled workers, those workers that were making between $15 and $20 an hour back in 2000. But the high-skilled workers have seen almost a 375% employment growth, I mean, more than tripled since 2000. And that's really the concentration of workers in what we are do very good at, where we have a comparative advantage in, such as advanced manufacturing, you know, a, a clean room. Uh, here in Indiana, we are we have a long history of automobile manufacturing, but we, we tend to do very well in the manufacturing of drugs and pharmaceuticals. We have the world's largest cluster of orthopedic joints. We make uh, and sell an awful lot of avionics. So that's true in Boston. It's true in Connecticut. It's true in, in Virginia, you know, along both coasts. Those are things that are doing really well. What tends to be automated very quickly have been you know, the very low-skilled tasks. So the uh, it's very difficult to find an online picture of, say, a food processor or a tomato canner that has any people in the, in the, in the warehouse. So these tend to be the, you know, the, the production of canned vegetables and canned fruits and those things seem to have almost no people visible on the shop floor. And that's a very big turnaround from even 40 years ago, where along the East Coast, food, canning, and the like, there were 
plenty of low-wage jobs in those sectors. And what is more difficult to really predict is what's happening in the middle-skill jobs, the iron, the steel manufacturing, some of the plastics and higher-end food. Those are, I think, areas where we haven't seen quite the job losses yet, but, but are very risky for us in the next coming decades. Our reporter, our business reporter, is also in studio with us, Harriet Jones. Yeah, Michael, I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about how employers think about investment in these different ways. I mean, obviously, it costs money to invest in automation, but it also costs money to, you know, hire and uh, train your workforce. So how are employers looking at those differential costs and which are they most excited about? Right. I mean, it's a great question. I think probably the best way to illustrate is to think about the carrier plant that was uh, the subject of so much pre-election debate and then post-election efforts by the Trump administration here in in Indianapolis and north of me in, in Huntington, Indiana. There were two plants uh, employing a little over 2,000 workers. And they announced last March or last February that they were going to move to Mexico, where labor costs were about 10% of what they were in the United States. So the typical worker in these two factories was taking home 20 to $22 an hour, pretty pretty good paying job. Um, and had another six to eight dollars in healthcare costs and four or five dollars in other fringe benefits and taxes. So these are thirty to thirty-five dollar an hour workers, and they were going to move to Mexico at three or four dollars an hour. Um, and then the Trump it, and 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 one of the reasons they would have done that it would have made sense to move the capital was because of very high corporate tax rates. Uh, they argue a very steep regulatory environment, and there's some legitimacy to the argument. Um, that the regulatory costs of that operation were very high. And then along came the promise from the Trump administration that we're going to cut corporate tax rates, harmonize them more with the rest of the developed world. Uh, Maybe we'll cut a lot of the, at least reduce the frequency of change in regulatory costs from the Department of Energy. And the result was, well, we'll just build the factory here, but we're still going to automate. So instead of going to maybe from $35 an hour of labor cost to $3 an hour that they're going to maybe uh, have machines that cost a replacement value about 6 to $8 per hour. And so they are going to automate here. They're making a very large investment in Indianapolis away from Huntington, which is a small, small town north of Indiana, or north, in, in northern Indiana, and then um, keep em- maybe a 1,000 jobs. But those jobs are not going to necessarily be the same people. They're going to be people who are operating advanced assembly machinery. They're going to be coding. They're going to be probably familiar with artificial intelligence and machine learning. So it's not even clear to me that it's going to be the same thousand people, but there'll be a thousand jobs. And so I think all manufacturing in the United States are playing off. You know, we live in a period of very low capital costs right now, with the exception of the federal corporate tax rate um, and an exploding period of information technology automation and exciting advances in artificial intelligence. At the same time, there's a lot of uncertainty about worker health care costs, about the availability of skilled workers, and Carrier actually chose to close the Huntington plant because they knew they would have a large workforce in Indianapolis. So I think manufacturers are, are very much wrestling with this like we are, which is, you know, what's really going to be most profitable for us? How can we maintain our presence here? And it's important in many places to keep a labor force around so that you can just continue to have more workers as uh, you know folks leave and retire. So consideration about the geography of jobs is very critical, which is, I think, why Indianapolis won out and Huntington lost. 
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about automation. That's Dr. Michael Hicks, who's a director of the Center for Business and Economic Research at Ball State University. Uh, Michael, you were talking about um, the low-skilled workers earlier, and many of them end up um, you know, losing jobs, but they end up in the service sector. But now we hear automation creeping more into the service sector. What happens to these workers? Uh, right. You speculate earlier whether or not uh, your job might go the way of uh, of uh, automated artificial intelligence. Yeah, that's a that's a, a real problem. Um, any place where labor plays a big role in production that you can outsource that or change your production process makes a big difference. And you know what what economists have come to learn from a couple of influential papers uh, out of MIT over the past four or five years is that the geography of jobs. Uh, and the very large job losses that have occurred over the past decade have really clobbered regions. So maybe it takes a county a decade or longer to recover from these job shocks. And that's very much different from the story that we've been telling over the past 100 years that, you know, that there's a fairly seamless adjustment to this. I think we are going to have a lot of stranded workers whose investment in human capital was inadequate to the 21st century. Um, part of that's the fault of a KY system that maybe didn't prepare them. But, you know, I, I like to be honest. Um, you know, I'm a 54-year-old economist. I teach graduate courses in mathematics all the time. But I'd really be afraid to go back and relearn that middle school math that I last took in the 1970s. And that's the position that many of these workers are faced with now. So I think it's a very difficult uh, reality that very large adjustments in labor markets leave lots of workers stranded and makes it more difficult for households to relocate, to acquire new skills, and, and the investment dollars that are targeting those through the Workforce Investment Act at the federal level or through states just is not seeming to do a very good job of transitioning workers to some new skill where, quite candidly, there are employers all over the country dying for, for skilled workers right now with a very low unemployment rate. We're talking a lot about automation, but there are efforts to bring um, offshore jobs back to America. That initiative is called Reshoring. Uh, to join us, to tell us more now, we're joined on the phone by Harry Moser, founder and president of the Reshoring Initiative. Harry, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Lucy. So tell us a little bit about the Reshoring Initiative and, you know, what are you seeing in terms of getting companies to make to move back to the U.S.? Uh, we, we've seen very good progress. If you, if you compare, say, 2014 and 2015 to 2000 to 2005, we've gone from annually losing about 200,000 manufacturing jobs a year to offshoring net, net of returns, to by 2014 and 2015, breaking even. We're still losing maybe 60,000 a year to offshoring, but we're reshoring and doing foreign direct investment for about the same number. So we've gone from a major annual loss to offshoring to approximately break even. So we're, we're rather encouraged. So what's uh, enticing these companies back? Is automation part of, of um, helping them come back to this country to do the, make the products? Uh, automation is certainly part of it. Uh, the, the, probably the most important thing has been Chinese wages going up at about uh, 15, 10 to 15 percent per year for the last 15 years. So, so the Chinese wages have gone from being almost not worth counting, you know, to, to being significant, like like four dollars, five dollars an hour, sort of like uh, Michael was describing in in Mexico. And so the, the wages have gone up there. First thing. Second, the uh, the companies have found that 
they had been ignoring many of what we call the hidden costs. They, they had looked only at the wage rate, only at the price, the X-Works price, and they'd ignored even simple things like freight and duty, and then a slightly more complex things like carrying cost of inventory, travel cost, intellectual property risk, the, the impact on innovation when uh, engineering and manufacturing are separated by 6,000 miles. So the as the companies have become a little more sophisticated, they start to do the math more correctly, uh, and the gap in wages have, has been reduced to the point where now we estimate that about 25% of what is offshored uh, would come back if companies did the math properly. Uh, the the loss of jobs to offshoring is about 4 million jobs rather than the million that the professor described, and, uh, and therefore 25% of 4 million is about 1 million that would come back if the companies did the math correctly. Our business reporter is here, uh, Harry, uh, Harriet Jones. So, Harry, I'm curious, because some of the companies that I hear from that have reshored, quality control is actually a big issue for them. So it's kind of the higher end, you know, higher tolerance products where they say, you know, we'll get a shipment back from China and it's wrong. And, you know, that's a huge cost to us. So maybe you can talk about which is it is it those kind of more advanced manufacturing type um, companies that are, are bringing these jobs back, maybe because of that quality control issue, too. Uh, the the mix of companies that have reshored is biased or, or say more prevalent amongst what the government would classify as high tech or uh, medium high tech, you know, as opposed to low tech. So definitely, there's a tendency in the direction that you describe, um, but it's there's also an amazing amount of uh, apparel jobs coming back, which you you wouldn't have classified as as that uh, you know, extremely high quality consideration. Uh, so we've seen something like 13,000 apparel jobs come back in the last seven years. So, so there's a there's a range, and and as the work comes back, you get high skill jobs like like the professor described. I agree entirely, but you also pick up uh, you know, a, a reasonable number of of the lower skilled or the manual jobs, and you get them both at the assembly plant. Let's say in Carrier's case, at where the uh, product is assembled, but you also get a, a whole range of jobs at their suppliers. When the when the product is made, is assembled here in the U.S., probably, and I'm guessing at this, probably 80% of the components are U.S. sourced, whereas when the product will eventually be assembled in Mexico, maybe 40% of the components will be U.S. sourced. So the, the supplier population loses dramatically when the, when the product is offshored also. Uh, Michael Hicks, you're The Economist. Do you want to respond to Harry Moser's numbers? Well, I mean, I, I generally think the trends that he describes are right. The numbers are wrong. Um, there really isn't a credible study that finds more than about a million and a million and a half high-end outsourced jobs. One area of contention that I think is reasonable is that I do think that the foreign pressure for employment has generated a significant rush towards automation of U.S. manufacturers. But I also think we need to think a little bit more about this than just manufacturing. So we've lost since 1977, or 1977-79, we've lost about 7.2 million manufacturing jobs. We've gained about 9.7 million transportation and logistics sector jobs. So the value of moving goods around by producing them in the place that's most appropriate has also displaced a lot of, or absorbed a lot of those displaced workers from manufacturing. So 
the trade issue here is a little bit more complex than counting jobs in manufacturing. The other thing I think is worth noting is that many of the jobs that we talk about anecdotally reshoring are at huge risk. So the artificial intelligence gains of the past decade or two, and the, you know we're right on the cusp of seeing those begin to move into uh, factories, are really going to clobber those medium and low-skilled jobs. So assembly plants that have often thought to be immune from sort of automation because of the complex, you know, manual tasks that have to be performed are at grave risk for automation. I think, you know, maybe 40% of jobs in the U.S. and, and something like 80% of manufacturing jobs are, are likely at risk if you read a, a, a recent Oxford University study. So I, I'm not confident that the notion of reshoring is going to make a dramatic dif- difference in employment numbers. And the examples of like for apparel, 13,000 jobs, well, he, you know, that's we have 175 million workers in the United States. That's uh, 13,000 jobs over seven years. Sounds exciting, but it's really uh, almost irrelevant. Uh, that's about the job churning of a single day in the U.S. economy. Harry, do you want to respond? I mean, how threatening yeah, is automation? First, first on the numbers. I think the numbers have to be gotten correct. Otherwise, you can't make the decision. It's very easy to calculate the number of jobs lost to offshoring. The uh, the goods trade deficit in 2000 was $285 billion a year. In 2015, it was 672. The change is 387 billion. The average uh, production per manufacturing worker is 179,000 per year. Bam, 2.6 million jobs lost to offshoring. Uh, uh, manufacturing employment's down by 4.8 million. 54% of the jobs were lost to offshoring. The balance to uh, uh, productivity. And the flaw in Professor Hicks's methodology is that he uh, uses the productivity numbers, which is are generally agreed to be overstated because of the raise in productivity in computer products, and then he backs into the loss from offshoring as being the residual losses of jobs that are left. It's much more direct and much more objective to look at the actual increase in the trade deficit and say how many jobs would it take to uh, make up that loss if it had not occurred. We could probably argue with the numbers uh, for some time, but I did want to talk a little bit more about um, artificial intelligence and and how that is changing uh, automation. And we know that um, advances in software means automation is now encroaching on professionals, people who aren't working in factories. Adam Smith is on the phone. He's chief revenue officer at Automated Insights, a software company headquartered in Durham, North Carolina. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Lucy. Excited to be here. So tell us a little bit about your company and who you are working for. Yeah, so uh, at Automated Insights, I guess when we're referred to in the news, we're often referred to as robo-writers. But uh, what our Wordsmith platform or our technology actually does is we take data and write stories, articles, and reports that sound just like a human wrote them. Um, So basically software-written stories with the tone, variability, and personality of a human writer uh, but that are completely automated through technology. They really, um, they really sound like human wrote them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We have, you know, some of them in business intelligence or finance. We're, we're, you know, using the AP style guide, or we're very serious. But in others, like we do things with Yahoo Fantasy Football, where we tell millions of stories to every individual user every week, where we tell them what they did right and what they did wrong, with, with sometimes a funny tone. Um, we're actually in over 50 industries. We're producing over a billion and a half stories a year. So everything from finance and personal portfolio reports 
uh, to earnings reports for the Associated Press, to making business intelligence dashboards more easy to understand, to working with devices like the Amazon Alexa, where we serve as a dynamic script. Basically, anything with a structured data set, mm -hmm. we can write a story about. So today we're talking about how automation is threatening jobs, but um, tell me about job creation at your company, and who are the people that are, that are doing the work? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we have over 50 employees here at, uh, at Automated Insights, combination of uh, developers, uh, data scientists, um, and then, you know, sales, marketing, and everything else that, that comes together to run a business. And so these are young, uh, highly educated workers that you're hiring? Yeah, that's right. I think, you know, the, the big story about artificial intelligence and, um, you know, bringing technology into the workforce and especially in the, on the professional side, whether it's automating, automation and journalism or other areas, is that um, there's a, a big chance to kind of work with a new technology. I know that, that spreadsheets didn't eliminate accountants, and I think, um, you know, technology like ours, um, is actually available for anybody to work with and create their own stories at scale. So we're seeing not only the employees at our company uh, creating content for companies like, you know, Cisco and AP and others, but we see people at those companies actually creating content themselves, building new skills, and a lot of our clients are actually hiring uh, automation editors, uh, are hiring roles to, to work with our platform, to work with Wordsmith to create new content, both internally and, and for their end customers. I want to turn back to The Economist, Michael Hicks. Um, you know, we're hearing from this particular company based in the Research Triangle uh, down in North Carolina. Um, you know, what happens to the long-term unemployed, though, as this automation continues, the impact of automation continues to grow? Well, you know, interesting question. I think the point that much of the automation is skill-biased, and so it complements workers. So, you know, look at the work platform that most of us work at. Most of your listeners in Connecticut and a large area are going to have computers that are really making their job, uh, uh, increasing the demand for their skills, increasing their wages, increasing their productivity. And so I think that's going to be as common with artificial intelligence as and has been that common with artificial intelligence as our job-replacing sorts of tasks. So the real danger is that if you're a low-skilled worker, if you're you know making under $15 an hour, if you're living in a large city, you have high health care costs, and you're doing a routine task, that's the real risk of job loss associated with artificial intelligence. And I do think that those workers are the most going to find it most difficult to re-enter the labor force. You're going to find it most difficult to be mobile to new places that may have jobs of their skills. And so I think that's going to be a persistent problem for any region that's, that's you know, has a large endowment of high school graduates or people with, uh, you know, a year of college under their belt or less. And those are the ones who are, I think, at greatest risk, even if a few occupations really get clobbered like accountants or finance profs. I think those folks will find something else to do. It's the high school grad in their mid-30s that doesn't have any other options that's at risk. I want to turn back to Harry Moser, founder and president of the Reshoring Initiative. Harry, we just have a couple of minutes, but I wanted to just ask you a little bit about, you know, policy changes from the White House down uh, that could help, uh, you know, bring more jobs back. And, and uh, you know, you talked about the Reshoring Initiative seeing some success. Uh, we hear the president wanting to renegotiate NAFTA. How will that impact things? So uh, I, I, we have a uh, policy prescription that we believe will get the job done. We specifically are working on a uh, competitiveness toolkit to offer to the president and Congress. 
and uh, our, our first priority is skilled workforce. There's such a shortage of uh, tool makers, precision machinists, welders, the you know, really highly skilled people, uh, not with a university degree, but with, say, an apprenticeship. Uh, that's our first priority. Be like Germany or Switzerland in that category. Uh, number two would be the um, border adjustment tax or value-added tax, such as the has been discussed, uh, lower corporate tax rates, the um, uh, reduction in regulatory and healthcare costs, you know, and then we'd say finally convincing the companies to do the math correctly, to, to look at their uh, total cost instead of just, just the wage rate or just the price. Uh, we're confident, based on our analysis of the relative uh, competitiveness of the U.S. economy today, that uh, two or three of those actions will allow us to bring back uh, up to four million jobs, but they can't come back immediately because if you brought them back, we don't have the skilled workforce or the capacity to produce, and therefore it has to be a gradual trend over 20 years, perhaps, to, to bring the jobs back. And we'll have to leave it there. Harry Moser, founder and president of the Reshoring Initiative, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Also, Adam Smith, chief revenue officer at Automated Insights, a software company headquartered in Durham, North Carolina. Thank you, Adam. Well, staying with us is economist Michael Hicks. We're going to talk a little bit about the 19th century and how the Luddites responded to a new technology threatening their jobs. That's after the break. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about automation and how technology will impact the American workforce over the next few decades. It already is. Now, in the 19th century, industrialization in England was met with destruction. Let's hear about those Luddites. Joining us now by phone, Clive Thompson, author of Smarter Than You Think, How Technology is Changing Our Minds for the Better, also a columnist for Smithsonian Magazine. Clive, welcome to the show. Hi, how you doing? We're doing well. So we've been talking about automation, and we wanted to go back into history and hear about the Luddites. You know, who were they, and what prompted them to act? Well, the Luddites were a uh, a group of workers who primarily worked in the in the textiles area north of London, which is to say, you know, they 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 were weavers. You know, they would weave stockings, uh, or they would crop wool. They would sort of take wool that was spiky and make it nice and smooth. And what happened was that in the, uh, in the first decade or two of the 19th century, war with France really screwed up trade in, in Britain. So the demand for these goods went down, prices of food went up, and all the merchants started saying, we need to, we need to cut costs. And they did it by bringing in a lot more machinery that made the work more efficient, that gave the workers less work. And, uh, and so there was this really big automation wave uh, that uh, put a lot of people out of work and changed their lives. They no longer had control over their work. They, they used to work at home very leisurely. You know, you could sort of set your own hours. Now they're having to troop off to these quite grotesque factories to work in. So they decided, all right, we, we, you know, we, we don't like what's happening. Um, the guys who own all these machines are not treating us very well, and they, uh, they tried bargaining with, with the owners. Ogerns wouldn't, wouldn't want to bargain, and so they, they decided to start smashing the machines to, uh, to sort of be a very, very direct form of action. And that's, that's, that's how the Luddites did it, basically. You said they tried bargaining, so they were just looking for still fair wages, even though the machines were um, coming in um, and producing less quality. 
Well, yeah, the, the, yeah, exactly. The, the, what they, the way that the Luddites regarded machinery, they, they didn't actually think machines were bad. They, they themselves have been using, you know, like kind of newfangled frames to help themselves do their work for a long time. So they weren't anti-machine. What they didn't like was the idea that if you rolled out a whole lot of machinery really quickly and everything became more efficient and more productive, you should, if you're, you, the owner, needed to share those profits fairly with all the people, uh, including some of the ones who may be being put out of work. They, they thought that really what they, what they objected to was, was kind of, you know, the way the market started to change. It started to be a much more, you know, Adam Smith free market uh, uh, sort of environment where, you know, the, the, the capitalists could sort of, you know, call all the shots and make all the money. And the workers sort of weren't really given much of a chunk, which, again, resembles a lot of people's complaints about today's economy, where um, for the last couple of decades, the majority of, uh, of productivity increases and the money that comes with it have gone to um, a very small number of, uh, of, of, of owners instead of uh, people. So uh, th- th- that's what they were objecting to. They had a moral argument about the nature of capitalism, basically. Um, what happened to the Luddites? That movement didn't last very long? No, no, yeah. I mean, like, they started breaking these machines, and after a few months, the uh, British government realized, oh, my goodness, this is, this is serious. And they sent 14,000 soldiers uh, up to these towns north of London. And uh, they worked really hard at getting informants, and then basically about a year inwards, they started catching some of them. And they held uh, very quick kangaroo trials, put, uh, put a bunch of them to death, hung them. Uh, put a bunch in jail, sent another couple dozen abroad to Australia, and they essentially nipped it in the bud really quickly. The the, the Luddites rose very quickly and fell very quickly. In a year and a half, it was it was all over, quashed by the um, by the soldiers of the state. Many were hung. Yes, in fact, there was actually um, uh, a special sort of special uh, gallows built that you could hang a couple people at the same time uh, to make it very very visible. Um, and they they they. They, they even executed teenage boys um, who had been participated in these things. It was a, it was very, it was a very, very intense pushback by the state against this stuff. Now, economist Michael Hicks is with us from the studios of Indiana Public Radio. Uh, Michael, what can we uh, learn from the Luddite movement? Um, the lessons learned, because obviously they were upset with this uh, automation that were taking their jobs, uh, but in the, in the same sense, it could have created uh, new jobs for them. Well, it did, um, and you know, I love Clive's article. It was very interesting. The uh, and, and if you think about the times, you know, William Blake was writing at the time, referring to these the satanic mills, and it's I find it horribly ironic that we're now talking about preserving those satanic mills. Uh, the the uh, worker uh, relationships at that period of time were, I don't think, very much dissimilar from what Adam Smith saw a half-century earlier um, as he was composing theory of moral sentiments and and, uh, wealth of nations, or really horribly dissimilar to what we observe today. Um, The big problem, I think, is that economists would argue was that this technology shock was very displacing and very concentrated. And so if you live in a place like Muncie that's lost maybe 30,000 jobs out of a town of 115,000 over the past uh, 25 years, if you have seen dramatic shifts in, in employment uh, in, like Detroit or Toledo or Akron or Birmingham, Alabama, due to manufacturing, that the sort of level of discontent with the uh, status quo uh, really boils over. And I think we saw that in the election. We've seen it in two or three elections probably. And the the real concern that I think economists have is that the adjustment periods that we have seen being fairly stable and fairly happy 
I mean, we went from 40% to 2% of employment in agriculture over the last century, and that went pretty well. Maybe isn't going as well. Maybe the workers who are being displaced don't have a good place to go. Maybe their skills don't match the modern economy. Maybe the jobs aren't available in the places that they would like to live. And maybe it's difficult for them to move. They're underwater in a home and, and have a, a spouse working. So those are challenges that I think are, are unique, uh, but maybe echo back to uh, Georgian England and the Luddite movement and maybe gives us pause to listen to workers and, and to worry a lot about regions that are suffering in ways that are uh, distinct from experience in the 20th century. We just have a couple of minutes left, but, you know, it's 2017, uh, Michael Hicks, uh, when, when you mentioned the Oxford study earlier um, about, you know, 47% of jobs, uh, you know, are at risk for automation. I mean, what are we, what should we be looking for in the next uh, couple of decades? Right. And this is where, uh, you know, I'm very anxious about the reshoring uh, uh, jobs program that Mr. Moser mentioned in the earlier. You know, what really matters at the end of the day is the skills that workers have to adapt and if you're a if you're an economist or a, a news broadcaster or if you're working on a shop floor, the technology is going to require several adaptive processes throughout your life, and that's maybe different than what the Luddites experienced. The looms there weren't very different from the 1600s, uh, and all of a sudden came steam power and and boom, jobs went away. And I think what what we have to look at in the next couple of decades is whether or not we're doing enough in our K-12 system or in our workforce development system to prepare workers for change, not selecting or pre-selecting specific tasks that may be important for them. I don't think government in general does a very good job of that. Workers do. Workers like to do things that are make them productive and, and, and are, have a useful life of labor. So I do think that that's really the bigger challenge rather than cherry-picking a, a set of tasks for us over the next two decades. I want to thank Michael Hicks. He's the director of the Center for Business and Economic Research at Ball State University. He joined us from the studios of Indiana Public Radio. Michael, thanks so much. Good to be with you. And if you want to learn more about those Luddites, Clive Thompson can help you with that great article in the Smithsonian columnist for Smithsonian Magazine and author of Smarter Than You Think, How Technology is Changing Our Minds for the Better. Clive, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, I had fun. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. WMPR's executive producer is Katie Tolarski. Check out WMPR.org slash where we live for more about the show. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.